Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again this morning, Lord, to worship you and to worship your Son, Jesus Christ, our God and our Savior, who has given us his righteousness, our great shepherd of the sheep, who has given us a new birth a new birth that he purchased on the cross that he, by his spirit, has bestowed upon us freely. And we pray, Lord, this morning that we'll be able to worship you through your word. And so now we ask that you may give us hearing, not because of us, but because of you and because of Christ, who is our Savior, who is our mediator, the one who has gone into the very holy of holies in the heavenly temple to appear before you on our behalf. And whoever intercedes for us every day and every hour, uh, that we may not stumble. For stumbling, we are prone to. So Lord, I pray and thank you for this hour that we shall be going into your word and we now ask uh, for your Holy Spirit and we ask for understanding and we ask for clarity and we ask for open hearts and minds that they may hear the truth and be saved. I pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in John 3, we are in John 3, verses 22 to 30. John 3, verses 22 to 30. And this is what Apostle John, by the Holy Spirit, has recorded for us. He says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Verse 25. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom ye have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. Verse 29, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him 
rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. And if we were to give a title to this sermon, they, there are three titles. He must increase, or I must decrease, or John 3, verse 27. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. That would be a very long title, but a very appropriate one. So we are going to be working on those and tying those together and see what the Lord will give us in terms of understanding about what John was teaching and what God overall is working for us to understand. This is obviously the first time that Nicodemus has disappeared from the scene. And John does not tell us how Nicodemus disappeared from the scene, but we know that Nicodemus has disappeared from the scene, and in comes John the Baptist. John the Baptist is back. He's back in the limelight. John the Baptist comes and gives his last witness and testimony of Jesus. And through the testimony of John the Baptist, John the Apostle continues to develop and remind us of who Jesus is. And just in case one has forgotten who Jesus is, John the Apostle brings back John the Baptist so as to give us a refresher course on Jesus before John the Baptist has been removed from the picture. And sinners constantly need a refresher course on Jesus. Sinners need a constant refresher course on Jesus. But according to John the Apostle, John the Baptist has begun his ministry by telling us the work that he was commissioned to do. John has begun by telling us about the work that John the Baptist was commissioned to do. He was commissioned by God to prepare the way for the Lord and to bear witness of the light. To bear witness of the light who is the Logos, who is the Word of God, who is God. So Apostle John has told us in John 1 verses 6 to 8 and said, There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So John the Baptist was a man sent from God. And as a man sent from God and not from man, he came to bear testimony of the light which is Jesus Christ. And as I said, this is the light 
that was in the beginning with God. And if a man be sent from God, like John the Baptist was, they can't help but bear the testimony and witness of the light. They can't help but bear the witness and testimony of Jesus. They can't help but preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is how we know that one is a man of God. We know John the Baptist is a true man of God. He is a true man of God not because he has attracted a huge following after him, but in that he continuously points his followers to the one who bears the light. He continues to point his disciples to Jesus Christ. So he points this crowd to Jesus and says again in John 1 verses 29 to 20, sorry, John 1 verses 29 to 34 and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of, of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So the true testimony of one who is a man from God and a man of God is that they are always quick to point people to Jesus. And this is how you are to evaluate every preacher. You evaluate them by how much they make of Christ and point you to Christ and tell you about the things of Christ. They don't tell you about you and your goodness, you and the better you and the power that is in you and what things you have to do to make your life better. Rather, they tell you, they tell you about the Logos. They tell you about the light. They tell you about the Lamb and what He has done and is doing to make your life better. They tell you about what Christ has done to justify you, to get you accepted by God and to clean you up of your filthiness and to present you holy and blameless before him. To John, 
the Baptist, Jesus has a higher rank than him. Jesus has a higher rank than him because he existed before John. John the Baptist says, even though Jesus is my cousin, I did not even recognize him until God had revealed him to me by the descending of the spirit which remained upon him. And if you go and read the story and you think about what is being said, it is obvious that John alone was the one who bore witness to the spirit descending on Jesus. It's not everybody who saw it. This was not revealed to all who may have been with John. And this is in keeping with what the scriptures teach about how Jesus has to be revealed to anyone to believe. Christianity is a revealed religion. You just don't get up and say, I am a Christian. God has to reveal Christ to you. Jesus has to be revealed if anyone is to know anything about him and even more to believe in him. John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, did not even know who Jesus was. Even Jesus' own brothers, who shared the same mother and ate and slept in the same house, did not know who Jesus was until he was revealed to them. And you, 2,000 years away from when Christ was walking in shoe leather, has no chance to know who Jesus Christ is unless God reveals him to you. So what does it mean to have Jesus revealed to you? To have Jesus revealed to you is not to say you know some things that are true about Jesus. For there are many who know some things that are true about Jesus and yet do not believe. Jesus' own brothers knew a lot of things about Jesus and yet did not believe. To have Jesus revealed to you means that God has given you a personal testimony. God has to give you a personal testimony and a witness that Jesus is the Son of God who came in the flesh, who died for your sins and resurrected on the third day. It is to believe as to lay hold of him by faith. And resting all your eternity on God's testimony of Jesus. To have Jesus revealed to you means to forsake all your righteousness. Because Jesus cannot be revealed to you or to anyone. And then leave you still thinking that there is something good in you. It's impossible for you to have Jesus revealed and still think that there's something good in you. If Jesus is revealed to you, your first reaction 
has to be the same reaction that Isaiah had in Isaiah 6. War is me, for I am undone. I am so ruined. I am so tossed because I've seen the glory of God's righteousness. And if Jesus is revealed to you, your reaction should be, men and brethren, what shall I do to be saved? And when Jesus was revealed to Apostle Peter and the calling of the disciples, Luke records for us and says in Luke 5, 8, that is when they had caught a lot of fish and their boats were beginning to sink. This is what happened to Simon Peter. Luke says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and listen to this, saying, depart from me, get away from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When Jesus has been revealed to you, this is what has to happen. This has to be your reaction. Depart from me, Jesus. Get away from me, Jesus, for I am a sinful man. That is how Christ is revealed to sinners. But John comes and says, he is inferior to Jesus. And because he is inferior to Jesus, he baptizes people with an inferior medium. John immerses people in water. He baptizes people in water, which is an inferior way of cleansing. Remember what baptism is for. Baptism is for cleansing. But the baptism that John the Baptist gives only cleanses the outside. But he of whom he testifies baptizes or cleanses with a different and a better medium. Christ cleanses with the Holy Spirit and because he cleanses in the medium of the Holy Spirit, he dips you into the medium of the Holy Spirit. He is able to clean not just the outside, but the inside. So the cleansing of the Holy Spirit gives a new birth. The Holy Spirit gives a new birth and it also gives life. Which just regular baptism just the dipping in water does not give. So John has testified that this one who comes is not just the Logos who created all things, but he is the light and the life of man. He is also the Son of God. But this sonship is a unique sonship. He is the only begotten. He is the only kind. He is the unique son of God who is God. But not only that. John has testified. But this is about John's testimony. It's all going to be about John's testimony. Not only that. This one is also the lamb of God. That takes away the sin of the world. 
So this one who is preferred before John is also designated to die as a sacrifice. A lamb was designed to die. A lamb was not given to be a pet. A lamb in the language of the Bible was designed to be a sacrifice for sin. So Christ comes as God's sacrifice to himself, but to remove the sins of his people. So John continues to exalt Christ, and in the process, he also continues to belittle himself, for he can't exalt Christ and exalt himself at the same time. So he has to belittle himself in the face of Christ and says in John 1, 26 to 27, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John says, when it comes to Christ, I am so inferior to him. And as I taught earlier when we were in this passage, for us to understand the glory of what John is saying, we have to understand what used to happen with the rabbis in Palestine during this time. Rabbis had disciples. And the rabbis were not paid for teaching. But the disciples that learned from them, from time to time, helped their rabbis with some menial work. They would help them to do some work. However, there's one thing that they did not help their rabbis with. The disciples could not remove the strap of the sandal of their teacher. This menial work, this work was looked down upon that it was only designated and left for slaves to do. Only slaves could unstrap the sandal of the teacher. But John the Baptist, knowing the surpassing excellence of Christ, comes and says, he John is not even worthy to untie the strap of Jesus' sandal. This is what he's saying. He's saying, when it comes to Jesus, I am so below Jesus, I can't even perform the menial work of a slave on Jesus. I am so in the dust when it comes to Jesus, because I am so below him. I am so below even a slave because a slave at least was allowed to touch the strap of the sandal. John says, I'm so below him. When you're talking about me and Jesus, a slave is of a higher rank than me. So what is the point? The point is that Jesus is way above anything that you can conceive. And the Holy Spirit is using these illustrations for you to have the same understanding of your relationship with Jesus. 
So this is John's attitude towards Jesus. And when the discussion arose about the Jewish purification, as we have in our text, we hear John giving the same testimony. John comes and continues to build the same testimony of what he has already said about Jesus. He takes this occasion again to point his disciples to Christ and say, Go to him, look to him. Here, John 3, 25 to 27. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom he have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. So there was a problem here. There was a question about some ritual purification. About how it was to be performed. And if at all, it needed to be performed. And for us to understand the argument, we have to appreciate that there were two major movements happening at this time. And we also have to understand that the Jews were so much into purification. They were so much into purification because of what? Because of the law and also because of the traditions of the elders. But we have to appreciate also that the ministry of John and that of Jesus At one time, they overlapped each other. So John still had his ministry going as Jesus' ministry was beginning. So there was this period of overlap. And this is where John brings us in this conversation. But these ministries shared similarities. The ministries shared similarity in that there were both movements with baptism and washings and were calling people to repentance. But they were administered by different individuals. So as I said, John's ministry for a minute overlapped with that of Jesus. And John's ministry at one point was very large. John's ministry at one point was very large. And Jesus' ministry at this point is growing whilst John's is starting to shrink. And so the Jew who came up and asked about ritual cleansing was trying to figure out which of the two ministries he should go to. And if at all, he was in his mind just trying, in my thinking, to sort out what really was going on. He is probably thinking, yes, I know and I've heard about John the Baptist's ministry, but why should I, a Jew, be baptized by him anyway? And even more, if there's another one whose ministry is Growing 
and also has baptism. So as a Jew, he is already steeped into a lot of washing. And he's thinking, why should I even submit to any more washing? John has been washing people, has been dipping people. His ministry is shrinking. Jesus shows up. He is baptizing by his disciples and his ministry is growing. So to whose ministry should I submit myself? After all, baptism is for Gentiles. It's for the unclean Gentiles. I am a Jew. I don't need to be baptized. So what's going on? So this is probably the background of what is happening as he is having a discussion with John's disciples. And he's thinking, okay, if I have to be baptized, am I going to be baptized by John? And if I'm baptized by John, do I need to go and be baptized by Jesus again? But by God's sovereignty, God uses this opportunity to have John the Baptist point once again people to Jesus. But hear the complaint. Verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. They are not just giving information. They are complaining. They knew that John had given testimony. John's disciples knew that John had given testimony about Christ. But apparently they still had issues with people going to Christ. In Mark 1.5, we learn that John the Baptist had captured the nation. He had captured the attention of the whole nation. And his movement, his ministry was growing. And now, this Jesus that John is talking about is drawing people away from John. And John's ministry is beginning to shrink in significance. And obviously, some of John's disciples were more committed to John than they were to Jesus. Otherwise, they would not have brought this accusation. But this is more of an accusation. So they were unhappy. They were unhappy that the following that Jesus was gathering was getting bigger and bigger. So they were feeling threatened by Jesus. And my thinking is, as Jews, they are probably thinking, we have this movement, we have to take advantage of the movements and remove the Romans. Hopefully this will continue to build momentum and we will be able to gather enough force to be able to unseat the Romans. So I'm thinking there is some political ambitions behind these statements. So their problem ultimately was not that Jesus was baptizing. Their problem was not that Jesus was baptizing. Because John tells us that Jesus himself was not baptizing. In John 4, 1 to 3. 
Jesus himself was not baptizing. Their problem was that Jesus' ministry and momentum was picking up. And they did not like that. And because Jesus knew that, John records for us in John 4 verses 1 to 3 and says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So the Lord knew. The Lord knew that the Pharisees had had. The Lord also would have known the accusations that are coming from John's disciples because it's connected with his reason to leave the place because it is he's baptizing more people and he knows that the Pharisees have been hearing about it. How did the Pharisees hear about that? I am thinking some of John's disciples went and told the Pharisees because they are the ones who are complaining about Jesus' growing ministry. But Jesus, we are told, knew when, the, when he knew. And this text does not tell us if there's anybody who came to tell Jesus. It says, and when Jesus knew, how did he know? He knows because he's God. Jesus knew what was happening because he is God. And this is in keeping. We should not be surprised that John the Apostle would give this kind of detail given the introduction that is given us of Jesus. So he is proving to us that Jesus has omniscience. He knows what's going on. He doesn't need anybody to testify as we learn from John chapter 2. So John the Baptist gives a response. He gives a response that may even have shocked some of his disciples. But it's a response that I wish and pray that sinners and professing Christians and even more, the so-called preachers and men of God would understand in their understanding of God, Jesus, and salvation. John says, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. John has already testified of who Jesus is, but his response also recognizes the sovereignty of of God in all things. And even in the transition, as things are happening, John says, all this is happening because it's God who is doing it. John knew that whatever he had and the success of his ministry was only for one reason and one reason alone. It was because God had given him the ministry. But even more, he also recognizes that the same sovereignty that gave him the ministry and made it successful was the same God and sovereignty that had Jesus' ministry growing. 
And the principle of God's sovereignty is there in the book of John. John wants us to know that. He wants us to understand it. And John would also say in John 6.65, and this is coming from Jesus. In John 6.65, Jesus says to the Jews, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from where? From heaven. From the Father. So, no one, absolutely no one can come. Absolutely no one can do anything unless it's been given them from above. And to Pilate, Jesus would say in John 19, 11, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. So all authority, all power, all things have their origin from the throne of God. So what is that saying? It is saying that both the ministry and its results depends only on the working of God. And what he has purposed to accomplish through the person or the persons. The success of our ministry or anybody's ministry does not depend on our running or our effort. Nor does it depend on our faithfulness. But only depends on what God has determined to accomplish through us. And no one will come and believe in Christ unless God has granted it to them. No one is going to gather themselves to Christ unless whatever they need to come to Christ has been given them from heaven. And the ministry of God in Christ is not going to fail because the church does not have money. The ministry of God in Christ does not fail because the success of God's work does not depend on man. It only depends on him. And God's will shall be accomplished. And as many as were appointed to come to Christ will come. Whether they come smiling or kicking and being dragged, they are coming. And praise the Lord that he brings them whichever way he wants to bring them. And with that also, as a preacher, I am not appointed for all men to hear me. Not all will hear what I'm saying. And not all will agree with what I'm saying. It's only for those who have been appointed to hear what God has put in my mouth. That are going to amen the word of God that he has given me. And with that also, no one can amen the truth about Christ unless it has been given them from above. You can't amen anything about Christ unless it's been given you from heaven. It's not my words, it's not my teaching, 
if there's any understanding that you have of Christ, it's only because God is actually giving it to you from above. And look at the sovereignty of it. God raises some Godhead somewhere in some rural place in Zimbabwe that you can't even get to. And yet he puts his words in my mouth to come and testify of Christ. And this was all appointed by him. There was knowing that I should be preaching Christ. Impossible. But with God, everything is possible. So John's testimony is that a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. This speaks to him as it speaks to Christ. John acknowledges that whatever he was was only happening because he got it from heaven. And whatever is happening to Christ is happening because it's coming from heaven. But remember what John has also said about Jesus in John 1, 11 to 13. John, the apostle, has said, He came to his own, that is Jesus, and those who were his own did not receive him. Remember what John is saying here. John the Baptist has said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. So we want to understand what more is John teaching about receiving? Why receive? Because receive is a word that John the Apostle loves to use. So even in the opening of his gospel, he said in John 1, 11 to 13, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, he gave them the right to be called children of God. A lot of Armenians stopped there. A lot of Armenians, when they caught this verse, always stopped there. And that's not right. You don't stop there because that's not where John finished his statement. John continued the statement and said, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Apostle John is fond of the word receive. The word receive is translated from a Greek word, lambano, lambano, L-A-M-B-A-N-O. And it means that which when taken is not let go. That which when taken, when you lay your hands on it, you don't let go. It is to lay hold of something without violence and not letting it go. It is to lay your hands onto something and taking possession of it. So his own did not receive him. 
They did not lay hold of Christ. They did not take him to themselves for their own benefit. They did not take Christ to themselves as their possession. They did not take Christ as to not let him go. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To as many as laid their hold on Christ. Those who took Christ to themselves. These are the ones who were given the right to become children of God. Why? Because God had given them a new birth. A new birth that was given by the will of God. Not by the will of man or of blood nor of the flesh. So what is the issue? Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They did not believe in him and did not see him for who he was. Why did they fail to receive Christ? John the Baptist answers and says, For a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. A man can lay hold on nothing as to possess it unless it is given them from above. What that is saying is, there's no one who can believe in Jesus unless they are gifted from heaven. Unless they are born again from above. Unless they have been given from above by God the ability to believe in Jesus. There is no man or woman or child who has ability in and of themselves to receive anything about salvation, about Jesus, about God's sovereignty, about election, about justification, unless God has supplied that ability. Men, women, and children who are born dead in trespasses and sins cannot and will not come to Christ unless they receive something from God. And salvation is by grace alone precisely because your heart and your will are unwilling. They need to receive life from above. Nicodemus, you must be born again. They have to be made willing by the Holy Spirit. Thy people shall be made willing in the day of thy power. And if God left salvation to your will and your decision, then you will surely and 100% be guaranteed to go to hell. There's no man who has faith who did not get it from God. And if God is the source and giver of all blessings, why then do people believe the nonsense and promote the foolishness and the lie that 
they can come to Christ by their own will. Why do men and women dishonor God and Christ by teaching that salvation happens when men exercise their own ability? John says, you have nothing in yourself unless God gives it to you. And we know for sure that there are some who believe in Jesus Christ and others who don't. Unbelievers die in their sins because of unbelief. But there's more to it. For one to be saved, they need to have faith. For without faith, it is impossible. It is impossible to please God. And without faith in Christ, without faith in Christ alone, one cannot be forgiven of their sins. And without faith in Christ, one cannot be justified. That is, they cannot be accepted by God. And what that means is, without faith, one cannot enter into heaven. But where do we get faith? Sinners don't have faith. That is the very reason why they are sinners. Faith has to be given from above. Faith is a gift from God. According to Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. Faith is a gift of God's grace. And repentance is a gift of God's grace. And a sinner needs both faith and repentance to be saved. And God supplies both faith and repentance for one to be saved. But he doesn't give it to all. And that's the rub. But it's unavoidable if according to John... For a man cannot receive anything. A man can receive nothing unless it's been given from heaven. So if you have faith in Christ and if you have repented and come to Christ, it's only because you received that from God. And the implication of that, which men don't like, is that God chooses. It's unavoidable. Given what John has said, it's unavoidable to come to the conclusion that it's God who chooses who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. For a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Grace has to come from heaven. And grace, by its nature and definition, does not allow for mixing. Grace is like oil and water. You can shake them together until the cows come home, but they won't mix. As soon as you stop shaking, they separate. Grace is like water, and your works are like oil. If oil and water have to mix, then it means 
something has happened to the nature of the oil or the water. Something has been done to change the nature of the oil or the water. But you can't change grace. You can't change the nature of grace. Why? Because it's coming from a God who does not change. It's coming from a God who is immutable. Grace is immutable. It does not allow for change. But you allow for change. You can be polluted. And your nature can be changed. And that's exactly what God has done. He has changed you by the giving of the Holy Spirit. He has given you a new birth. Crystal, you must be born again. That's how you change. So that you are compatible with grace. It's God who has to do it. God has changed you. And praise God, he has changed you and I by his grace. He has given you a new nature and a new birth and a new ability that we may be able to receive the things of Christ. Otherwise, you will die in your sin. So human free will in salvation is a lie. It's a lie. The Bible does not teach that human free will is the reason why some get saved and others don't. The Bible teaches clearly, Ephesians chapter 1, in the book of John, that it's God's election in Christ that determines who gets saved and who does not get saved. It's God's grace in Christ that determines whether you get saved or not. Free will is men trying to exalt their sinful choice over the work of Christ on the cross. It's not honoring Christ when you say it's your will that makes or breaks salvation. You are dishonoring the work of Christ on the cross. The cross of Jesus is the only basis of one's salvation. It is the cross that makes or breaks salvation and not one's choice of Christ. Your choice of Christ only happens because he has already chosen you. You are responding to Christ. Christ is not responding to you. For no man by their free will or their will, whether free or not, can come to Christ unless the Father draws them to Christ. But we know the scriptures teach very clearly and over and over that human will is not free. Human will is not free. It is bound and is dead in trespasses and sins and need to be born again. It needs to be created anew in order to receive Christ. And if you have anything in your life, you received it from God. If you know your name, you received it from God. Because if you have a name, the Bible teaches that your name was written before the foundation of the world. 
So which means in time you got your name because that's what God named you. Otherwise, God has to have a big eraser in heaven to say, Oh, I thought this was Robert. Uh, no, I had here uh, Simon. And if you have a working mind, you received it from God. If you have a working mind, you received it from God. If you know your name today, you received it from God. And if and when the Lord wills, he will take it away from you. And you can never say, but Lord, you can't do that. You can't do that. That is against my will. You can't do that. And if you have a mind that works today, God gave it to you that you may use it to know him and his son. Everything else is secondary. Your mind is there that it may be sogged and saturated with the things of the spirit because you are a spiritual being and are saved and are being saved to be in the presence of the father of all spirits. So you use your mind before you get old. Use your mind before you get old that you may know Christ. Use your mind and stuff it. Stuff your mind with the knowledge of Christ because you do not know what the Lord has appointed for you for the rest of your life. Stuff it with Jesus. What are you doing? I'm stuffing my mind with Jesus. So the correct attitude of one who understands Jesus, like John the Baptist did, is that they do not exalt anything about themselves before the knowledge and grace of God. And if a man comes and claims that the reason why they are in Christ is because they exercise their own will, they are saying they are their own savior. They are saying, if I don't exercise my own will, then God cannot save me. That is to say, Jesus Christ is not a sufficient savior. Unless you move your will that is bound. And you are saying, you must increase and Jesus must decrease. But Jesus said, when I've been raised up, I will draw all men to myself. So Apostle John says, through John the Baptist, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who is the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John again reminds his disciples of his subordinate position to Christ and says, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him to testify of him. But John sees himself as the friend of the bridegroom. He uses this 
as an illustration to show his subordinate position again. Remember the illustration that he gave us of the untying of the strap of the sandal. And he says, I'm not even worthy to do that. And with this now, he gives another illustration of a wedding. And he says, I'm not the main man. I am just the friend of the bridegroom. I am inferior to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the groom. I am just a friend of the bridegroom. I'm just an assistant. I am not the main participant in the marriage ceremony. The bride does not belong to me. I am just making the arrangements for the bridegroom for the marriage ceremony to be consummated. And then he says, when the groom comes, when the groom comes, of which he has come, the friend of the groom has to stand aside. And he does so, not grudgingly, but happily. And he says, for my joy has been made complete. So, John, in seeing the growing influence of Jesus, he does not begrudge Jesus. But he says his joy is fulfilled. It's made complete. John willingly and happily directs the bride, not to himself, but to Jesus. As should all faithful gospel preachers. All faithful gospel preachers have to direct the bride of Christ to the groom. And John says, he must increase, but he must decrease. John has to decrease. Why? Because the bridegroom is there. The bridegroom has come for his bride. So he has to step aside. John's ministry has to be displaced and be set aside so that Christ can be above all and be all and in all. Christ is not sharing the stage with anybody. He stands alone as the only bridegroom of his church, his bride. But we have to know who John is as we close this. So that we can tie all this understanding together. John is Jesus' cousin. John has been born full of the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. John's father is Zechariah, who was the high priest. And John, too, follows the priestly line, because his father was a priest. And when it comes down to the person of John, John's diet, John did not have Bob Evans or some olive gardens. John's diet was locusts and honey. And this you don't find on the menu there. And his clothes were made from camel's hair. He didn't have to go to the mall to buy some nice suit. So with respect to John, there's not much going on for John. And he is in the wilderness, calling people to repentance, and people are getting mad at him. 
And yet he says, he must decrease. And Jesus has to increase. His influence has to decrease. His growing popularity has to decrease in the face of Jesus. And his own life has to decrease. But how does John decrease? Apostle John tells us that at this time, John had not been put in prison. But shortly afterwards, John, we know, was put in prison and beheaded by Herod. So John's ministry not only gets taken away from him, but he also is physically removed through a beheading. Jesus' cousin is beheaded that Christ may increase. And this beheading is the ultimate commentary of how God can decrease someone in the face of Christ. God is willing to get you to prison and not only that, to get you beheaded that you may decrease in the face of Christ. And if Jesus' cousin, his own cousin, decreased, you are surely going to decrease in the face of Jesus, whether like it or not. But how do you decrease in the face of Jesus, even right now? You decrease by faith alone in Christ alone. Because this is what exalts Jesus alone. If Christ does not decrease you by faith alone in him alone, he will decrease you in hell. Spiritually, we decrease by faith. And the Lord may bring some life circumstances to decrease us. And he has been known to do that and continues to do that. But faith alone, in Christ alone, is the surest way to decrease in a good way before the face of Christ. And you want, and you want, and you can't decrease in the face of Christ as long as you think you have something that you have that you did not receive from God. As long as you are still standing on your leg of free will, you haven't decreased. You still have something. You are standing on something. You still need to decrease, to say nothing in my hands I bring. And as long as you think you can contribute something to your salvation, you are surely not yet ready to decrease. And sometimes God takes away even our minds. He takes away our marriages. He takes away our loved ones. It is for the purpose of decreasing us. And he has done that before. He decreased King Nebuchadnezzar. And you know the testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar when the Lord restored him after seven years of craziness. That's how he is able to decrease you. And as long as God lives, all men have to decrease 
in the face of Christ. God has determined from all eternity that salvation is the plan of decreasing all his creatures in the face of Christ. So those who understood this, like Apostle Paul, would say of Christ, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, listen, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So salvation is about decreasing you in the face of Christ. And faith alone is the only way that you can be reduced in a way that is agreeable with God in the face of Christ. No man, therefore, can receive anything unless it is from heaven. And Christ, Christ must increase and Christ has to increase. And you must decrease and you decrease now or he is going to make sure that you decrease. Your bucket has to be empty. Your bucket has to be empty. It, it's either your bucket is full of you or it's full of Christ. It's either full of water or oil, but never both. And if you belong to Christ, he will leave no stone unturned to make sure that he empties of your bucket. And sometimes it's a long and painful process of emptying. And he emptied the bucket of Apostle Paul. On the road to Damascus, Apostle Paul's bucket is full of himself and his own righteousness and his zeal for God. But when he had been emptied, this is what he says. And we'll be closing on that. In Philippians 2, verses 7 to 9. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, whatever things were full in my bucket, the assets, the things that were in my bucket, those things I have counted as loss. I have counted them as liabilities. I have dumped them out of my bucket. I have dumped them out of my bucket for the sake of Christ. <laughs> so he says, my bucket is empty. My bucket is empty. And more than that, I count all things to be loss. I count all things to be liabilities. Everything about me is a huge liability when it comes to God. Why? In view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Not some things. He says, my bucket doesn't have any more drops of me in it. It's empty and it's dry. I have dumped it out. I've suffered the loss of all things. 
and count them what? Not very good things. But rubbish. I have counted everything about me as dung so that I may what? I may gain Christ. That Christ may come and dump what is in Christ into my empty bucket. That I may gain Christ. That Christ may come and fill your bucket with himself. And listen to how Christ fills your bucket. He says that you may be found in him. That you may be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of your own. Not having a righteousness of your own derived from the law. Derived from your own sense of goodness. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God. You see where it's coming from? It's not coming from you. It's God who is giving you the righteousness to put in your empty bucket. And it's on the basis of faith. So only faith alone in Christ empties your bucket. Faith alone is what makes your bucket empty and dry. And ready to receive Jesus Christ. So I'll tell you the truth. According to this Bible, according to the teaching of the Holy Spirit, your will is not an asset. One who is born of the Holy Spirit does not argue for their will. They argue for the will of God. Your will is a liability when it comes to salvation and the things of God. Your will is a liability for no man can receive anything unless it is given them from above. That is a statement of God's sovereignty. It's a statement of God's sovereignty. And Apostle Paul would say, for from him and through him and to him are all things and to him be the glory forever. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Whoa. Thank you, Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne. Our Lord, we just praise you and glorify you and we honor you for your goodness and your kindness and what you have done by your sovereign will and power. Lord, to empty our own buckets that we may receive the things from heaven. For as we learn from Apostle John and John the Baptist, no man can receive nothing unless it's been given them from heaven. And we know that salvation in all its elements is a gift from God. In everything that is required of salvation, Christ our Lord has accomplished it. And Lord, we are thankful that you have given us the knowledge of Christ that we may decrease now. We thank you for the righteousness that is by faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, we are thankful for your Holy Spirit who teaches us the truth of Christ, who leads us into all spiritual things. Our Lord, I pray for your people. May you be with them, may you grow them. And Lord, even as you empty them of their own righteousness, 
Lord, may you remember mercy and strengthen them that they do not despair. Our Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.